Decoding today, the Swiss fixed gear rider Patrick Seabase. Hey guys, I'm Mathias Dandois, and thank you for tuning in into my podcast Decoding Athletes with Red Bull. I've been riding BMX Flatland for 19 years and been traveling for the past 12 years into more than 80 countries. I met so many athletes in my career and I really wanted to understand what does it take to become an extraordinary human being. If you have missed the previous episode with Danny McCaskill, Scotty James, Kelly Mannings, Tom Pages and Justine Dupont, make sure to subscribe and listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and every other podcast app. You can also watch the video version of the podcast on the vlogs on my YouTube channel. We'll link it all below in the show notes. For today's episode, I met with fixed gear rider Patrick Sibes in Bern, Switzerland. He's completed one of the most treacherous Tour de France stage on a fixed gear bike, which is a bike with only one speed, you can stop pedaling and there is no brakes. Patrick is always looking for the simple thing and aesthetic things, and that's what a fixed gear bike is. In this episode, we talk about him being vegan and gluten-free, and we talk a lot about how healthy food can impact your sport performances. He also has a lot of tattoos like me, so we talked about that. And last but not least, we talk about how he managed to do the 1910 Tour de France stage in under 13 hours with no lights, no brakes, and constant pedaling. That's Fiskir in a nutshell. I'd love to introduce you all the way from Switzerland, the Swiss fixed gear rider, Patrick Seabase. Today we are in Bern, Switzerland, with the most iconic fixed gear rider I know. Is uh, from Bern, actually. I'm really happy to have Patrick Seabase on the podcast. Welcome home, Patrick. Hi, Matthias. Good to have you here. I'm so excited. How are you doing tonight, Patrick? I'm, I'm so amused and excited to be here with Very you. Nice. No, I mean it. It's good to see you. And we had a beautiful dinner. Yep. Didn't you like it? At a Yorveda restaurant. Yeah, it was very healthy. It was very healthy. You noticed that we might have some uh, fun times on the toilets yes, tomorrow. Yes, uh, <laughs> it has this cleansing effect. <laughs> if you hear some uh, weird noises during yeah. the podcast, it's yeah. Patrick going yeah, yeah, for it. Yeah, Maybe it's you because it's the first time for you. You basically, your stomach got deflated. <laughs> But it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. We are in a... In the library of uh, a beautiful hotel in Bern. Uh, I know you like books, so that's why I picked a library. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, to get straight into the subject, we're going to explain what is a fixed gear to the listener. So basically, it's a bike where the rear uh, hub is connected to the wheel. So there is no yes. free wheel. Basically, if you go forward, the pedal go forward. If you yes. go backward, the pedal go backward. How fast Can you go on that thing? What's the fastest speed you've ever been on your fixed gear bike? That was in summer 2018, down the Simplo with a super crazy tailwind, 96k an hour. 96 That was fucking fast. Can I say fuck? Yeah, you okay, can say I'm fuck. Sorry. Fuck. All right. <laughs> uh, it was 96k. It was fast. I didn't have time to check the cycle computer, so I was kind of happy. Because if I would have realized that it was 96, I would have probably crashed freaked out <laughs> I was like oh looking too hard on a computer and noticing a, that's not possible 
then I would have crashed. Because no. like when you do 96k an hour, mm. for the people to realize is you can stop pedaling. So like the whole time no. your your legs are just like. Yes, I don't know why people do it, but it's uh, you're connected to that thing. So everything you do transmits it straight to the machine, which is your bike. So you become one. It's like the bike becomes an external organ, and I like that. But you know it has its um, trickiness. Like you said, um, you always have to pedal, even if you go whatever speed, like 96. And then you you pedal a high cadence. Obviously, for 96, you need a big gear and spin the legs. That's what happened. I survived, and I will go faster. You did, but you did go even faster on the road bike. No, you told me that uh, story in uh, in Hawaii. Can you maybe uh, say it again? For yeah, the listeners, it it's a recently, crazy story. Yeah, I, I went on a four-hour loop, and I, I decided to go... A different route on the Pali Highway. It's called Pali, which basically connects the east coast of Oahu with the west coast. So you would enter straight Honolulu. It was raining. I climbed Pali, a short climb, like maybe 4K, two miles, something, whatever. And I knew after the tunnel it goes down. So I sprinted because I heard a, a big truck in the tunnel and I was listening to the music with my headphones but it was so loud so I knew there's a truck and I was sprinting to go behind the truck went behind the truck and at some point I was going so fast I was trying to pass the truck I was next to the truck full 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 speed and I had 128 with a huge tail and it was like it was as if a rope would Pull me down into Honolulu. It was crazy. 128. Yes. What goes through your head at this moment? Good music and just like rush, adrenaline. I love it. I love it when it's not planned. I mean, if you would say, oh, now you have to go 130, I will probably be like, hmm, sounds scary to me. Let's say I have good bike handling skills and I have a good intuition. So I would just go with the flow. And, you know, if fate wants me to crash or die, well, what can I do? Trying my best to go with the flow. Yeah. It's really interesting. Some of the biggest things that ever happened in action sport were not planned. And this is the beauty of it. Uh, I think uh, when Stevie Churchill trucked down El Toro, it was mm -hmm. not planned. Some of the craziest skateboard tricks down El Toro were not a yeah. planned trip. Because yeah. I feel like when something is too planned and the athlete is just like in the head too in much, the head too much and when it's time to do it it's mm -hmm. kind of like oh there was so much anticipation mm -hmm. so do you like genuine stuff that are not planned yeah it's my favorite you know what i really like is with anything whether it's skateboarding um, bmx or i wouldn't consider what i do as extreme or special because i'm not doing any tricks the only trick i do is ride as smooth as possible to explain the the people so you do race bike with a fixed gear how would you describe what you do what i do is i'm doing something very egotistical but with that though i seem to inspire other people which is great so i go to places ride my simple bike without brakes very responsible and with one gear and it looks super nice And I'll go to, let's say, Africa, to the United States, to wherever I feel like going. And I'll have a filmer with me, photography, and I'll expose it the way I see it. And on the way, I find myself in challenges, like doing the biggest, highest mountains, the steepest. 
but it's not only the the challenge that finds my interest um it's more the yeah the cultural background of something like the, i did this 1910 thing let's go to that a little bit that was a crazy project so uh, in 2015 you decided to do the sea base uh, 1910 yes. project mm -hmm. which was uh, climbing the the gnarliest Tour de France stage ever. They actually stopped doing it. Yeah. After a that, years. a couple like, of years after. Yeah, they did it for like I don't know. I have all the numbers in my head, but probably seven years or max ten years. So in 1920, I'm sure they didn't do it anymore. So they did a, a Tour de France stage so gnarly they decided to stop it after a few years. The Tour mm -hmm. d'Assassin, yeah. and you decided to do it with a fixed gear bike. So with only one gear, no brake, and. Uh, a fixed gear. Can you tell us what, what happened that morning when you took that decision? Yeah, it was 4 a.m. and I was well prepared. I did a couple hours every week and I knew it's going to take me at least 10 hours, even more, because it was 6,000 meters of climbing. So I reckon 1,000 meters takes me one hour if I go with a good pace. So that's six hours of climbing already. Right? I mean... That's six hours of climbing. Or more. It was six thousand eight hundred. So let's say seven hours of climbing. And then there's more to that. So that makes maybe 13 hours, which in the end, it took me 12 hours and something. Almost 13 hours of constant pedaling. You don't stop for 13 hours. Well, I had to go. It's a funny story. I had to go. And so the minute I left, I clicked into those pedals. And you were asking me what, I, what was going through my mind, how I was feeling. I was nervous before, but as soon as I clicked in, I felt great. But then I, I remember shit. And literally, no pun intended shit, I had to go to the toilet. And obviously at 4 a.m. in France in the Pyrenees, there's no fucking toilet. <laughs> Nowhere. And I had to, de after the first uphill, the Bersur from Bagnard de Luchon, also the lights went out on the bike on top. So I was like, shit. Uh, so the whole descent which I never did before, I had no lights. You had no lights? I had no lights. I had no brakes, no lights. <laughs> But luckily I had one gear. Oh right? my so, God. And the cars and the motorbikes, they guided me a bit. But I still, I had like 70K an hour in the dark sometimes. You know? Whoa. And I had to go to the toilet as well. Like that was my <laughs> biggest concern. So I did Goldaspa, all good, sweating like a pig because I was wearing too many layers of clothing on there had a sip of a Red Bull some water and I told them guys I need to go to the toilet it's due really guys and they were <laughs> laughing at me you know I was like okay shit I'm gonna go continue and four hours later I was able to go on the toilet and I spent probably 20 minutes on the toilet and I still had the mic because I was all mic'd up <laughs> and they heard what I was saying you know I was like oh you know like <laughs> Whatever you say, this <laughs> whatever moment. I say, and it's all on tape. And it was the longest brown I made ever. <laughs> Can we use the footage for the podcast? Yes, it's true. It's a true story. It was. I, I think I never spent as much time on a toilet, and they were all waiting. Like the people, they had those um, rebel organized motorbikes because you know they didn't want me to have too many cars mm -hmm. in front of me, which is very nice. But that means more people means more pressure, you know, and they were waiting. But I lost all that sense because I really felt comfortable in that <laughs> toilet. So I let it go and I came out 
like, <laughs> all fresh and they were all waiting, like, you know, tapping their foot and like, oh, finally, what, you know. So anyway, the show went on, everything was great. And I spent like 13 hours in the saddle and I got to Bayonne, very relieved. It was the longest day in the saddle and yeah, I felt really good. These kind of days are more of a fight against yourself than other. You mentioned at dinner that even though people ask you to do some racing, mm -hmm. you declined because this is yes. not what you ride bikes for. Can you tell us why you declined uh, racing? Well, to be honest, I did a couple of races. I think I won like two or three criteriums, local ones, but I don't get great feelings from competing with other people. If there's a competition, I'd rather do it with like old school, with courage. Like you tell me, oh, can you do that? Like a bar spin of that 10 stair set. I would say, sure, I'll do it. Well, I try. Maybe I fail. If we both landed, well, we both won if you want. So, and it's not even about winning. It's about completing something. I like that we're jumping from a cliff, you know, can you do a backflip from that cliff? Yes, let me try it. I like that. There's no other factors like, oh, the day shape. Oh, today I feel like shit or I feel great or the wind's different and it helps this guy when he starts racing. I like just equality, you know, and courage that defines the actual sense of competition. If there's competition, which I in generally don't like, but if there's competition, courage should be a, what we aim for or what I aim for. That's yeah. it. Because I feel like this is why I write Flatland too. It's mm -hmm. because it's such a simple thing. Everybody yeah. can do it, but everybody is on the same exact skill. Absolutely. Thing, you know? And Absolutely. And I think style and smoothness is like when I look at a video of you, I know you're so in tune and you like it. When you do your fakey, I don't know those tricks, but manuals and you do it spin in circles and you can name the tricks afterwards if you want. <laughs> but it seems you're in tune and you really like it. And you, of course, had to practice some tricks and you struggle with some that just fell into your lap, you know, had a easy time making them or doing them. The main thing is, though, you can see you're having fun and you love what you do. And that's the best trick. It's not the competition part. No, but of course, when you reach a level and let's say I can push one hour, 450 watts, then I'd be like, hmm, maybe another little time trial in Paris uh, would be nice, you know, <laughs> like uh, get that Maillot Rouge. You know, it's easier if you're at a very high level and your chances are probably high that you can win. But I don't want to train to compete against a human. I train because I want to climb a mountain without looking like a potato bag and also be able to go quick uphill and enjoy the view. I don't like like looking like garbage on a bike. I'd rather not ride a bike. As soon as I look like shit on a bike, I stop. I want to look smooth. My aim is to perfect my pedal stroke. I do it six days a week. I want to have the most efficient, smoothest pedal stroke. What are the ways to improve that pedal stroke? Uh, a lot of practice on the rollers, free rollers, where you just put the bike on those rollers. They're not fixed. 
and then you just spin high cadences. I do like at least once a week for one hour, 118 to 120 rounds per minute for one hour. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And you sit smooth. It's like sitting on the couch. And if they would film only your top, like the back, they would think you're just, you know, like sitting, sit on the couch and underneath it's hauling ass, you know, the legs. And I like that, like the duality, like it's sort of a meditation, but it's also concentration, the focus, you know, to be stable and to spin the legs and generate power through momentum. I love it. And it's so smooth. It's like, you become that generator, that that efficient tool that powers, uh, like that's sort of the engine and that powers you and yourself, your bike to go to places in the end, you know, and I love it. It's But it has to look good. If you look, sh- you can be the fastest person on the bike. If you look like shit, I don't care. It's not about winning. It's about how you look. And how you feel. I have the same approach about my sport. It's like, I'm definitely not the most technical anymore, but at least uh, I'm doing stuff that I look good. And for me, like I film all of my new tricks. All of my new tricks, I record them. And if I see something that I don't like, I don't even do it anymore. Even if it's a contest winning trick or it's super technical, if it doesn't look good to me, just fucking put yeah. it in the in the toolbox and see you never, you know. But that's exactly what I have so much footage, even of the 96K. I have to redo it because my position on the saddle, like the saddle was a bit too much forward. I don't know. I changed something and then my hip was slightly moving and it wasn't the way I You can see this detail. I can straight. see it. I know it looks like, yeah, someone who, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it's not the way I want to have something you know, being public, you know? Of course. Because now we have to, with the internet, if we release something, we better make sure that it's great because it's going to be there for a long time. Longer than we are, right? So we better make sure it's good, right? So style is very important. Definitely. And we have time to think about stuff before we release it. So we better make sure it's worth it. Definitely. It was 2008 you picked your first uh, fixed gear? I think it's, it was even 2006, but I started... Riding more and more in 2008, yeah. What got you on this bike? Uh, it was the bike itself, how it looked. Very superficial. It was solely the visual approach that caught my attention. And I remember seeing it in San Francisco. I was like, oh man, that's beautiful. That's like a bike for people who don't like bikes. Perfect for me. And then I built one with a friend. friend had a shop, got it there bought all the parts, put it together, which was a hassle, which I actually never did again. I'm the worst mechanic, so (laughs) that's a fact. But I like riding it, so I kept on riding. And in 2008, I started riding more and more. Like my friend who basically I gave a bike closed yesterday. He went for his first bike ride yesterday for one hour, and he reported at me. He was like, man, I cannot walk. I had to take the train back. That's exactly the same story I went through. One hour to Thun, that's a a city nearby. It's roughly 30 kilometers. It took me probably a bit more than one hour, and I wanted to ride back. I couldn't. I was wearing jeans, like, you know, just normal guy. had no idea. And I had to take the train back. Uh, Afterwards, I was wrecked. (laughs) But then it started gradually. 
one year later, I got my first mountain done because obviously we're surrounded by mountains. This is the Gornickel? Gornickel? Gornickel, yeah. that's it. Uh, you did your research, Mathias. Not bad. I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Parfait. Parfait, bravo. Parfait, ouais. So the Gornickel, and then you got into... Higher ones, like 2,000 plus meters. This one is a bit more than 1,000. So then 3,000, now we're approaching the 4,000, the 5,000, the highest, you know. Uh, it's all in the works now. I think this year we're going to release some and do more of the high ones. But yeah, that's how it starts. We all start, you know, you did your first bar spin at some point. And I do like fucking 10 bar spins in, I don't know, uh, 10 seconds. So we gradually evolve if we stick to something. And you know, you know that, right? If we like it, we, we just need to keep on going. It's all about continuity. In, uh, in 2006, when you pick your first bike and in 2008, when you start riding it, was it, uh, ever for like the hipster part of fixed gear or? I'm not really a big fan of that word hipster, but it's probably true. Whatever. Yeah. Guilty pleasure. Cause it was. I remember like, and hipster is a word from like the 2010 era. Yeah, where a lot of, uh, yeah, yeah, but hipster I know what you people, mean. which can be now uh, a word that's negative, you know, hipster or whatever. It's like influencers. It's just, yeah, whatever. Now it's influencers. Yes. The, new, the it's new the new, I think so. Absolutely. Influencers are the there's, new hipsters. It's funny. There's even, I think companies now employ influencer managers. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> you have you heard that? Red Bull has some influencers yes. manager. Shout out to yeah, Red Bull for being influencers. Yes. For being, you know, on the ball. But then these hipster, a lot of these hipster people were using this fixed gear bike for a trend. Commuting, or, uh, yeah. Commuting. Having a coffee. Exactly. What did you think about that when you were climbing mountains? I don't care. I yeah. did. Honestly, you know, what I learned, especially getting older, not that I'm super old, I'm 36, but when I turned 30, the pressure in life and, and uh, being envy or, you know, pride, all those things which in in a high saturation can be not too beneficial for you, went off. So so I sort of focused on what I do and I try not to really care about what other people, I mean, I care about what other people do in my environment and I appreciate what, you know, if people do great things. But I didn't really judge other people because there are certainly other people who judge me. Oh, this guy, he rides without brakes and one, he's a hipster, but whatever. Fuck it. It doesn't matter. You know, it's 2020. Everybody yeah. judges everybody. It's like normal people in their underwear behind the computer at their desk with their whatever beverage in their hand are judging people anonymously. You know, it's like get a fucking life. Just do your stuff. Don't criticize people if they're trying to do something good. That's it. That's all we, you know, just speak. Fuck. Have a moral compass. Don't be an asshole. Don't be an asshole. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Are you into uh, the Tour de France stuff? Do you watch it? Do you have any like interest in uh, in cycling that I, way? I mean, it certainly doesn't really inspire me. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. It doesn't. I have a couple of friends, a very close friend. He was wearing the yellow jersey for the most days ever. A Tour de France? But he never, yeah, but he never won it. He won many other great monuments, uh, Paris-Roubaix, Flandres and world champion. And I used to follow it also because of him or some other people I know who was com who were competing, but I'm, I don't know, I'm not too much into races. I, I like riding a bike and 
not spending time with the bike after I come home and talk about bikes. With my friends, I rarely talk about bikes. They ask me probably more questions than I want to talk. I'd rather talk about architecture, books, music, whatever. I just do it, you know? I don't know how it's... Do you talk about... With your girlfriend, do you talk about what BMX tricks you learned today? Never. Never. Yeah. And, uh, and people who don't write BMX in your environment, you're not going to explain me, hey, guys, you have to listen. So today, you know, imagine I write backwards and then I spin. And, <laughs> and they're like, there, like, yeah, 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 yeah. What did you eat for dinner? You do that because you like it. I like it, exactly. And, and I think it looks it. beautiful. What made you such an aesthetic of liking the way things are? What a young Patrick was doing before fixed gear. I did a lot of skateboarding when I was eight. I started. I listened to a lot of music thanks to my father. So I looked at record covers. I looked at books and vinyl, especially vinyl, because we were surrounded by CDs and vinyl. So I like always the black. I remember the Metallica black helmet. That was the, my favorite cover <laughs> because it had this little snake. Yeah, and if you look closely, you saw it. So I like stuff that's subtle. You have to discover, and then you will never forget it because you discover something on it, which wasn't too obvious. So that made my eyes open, being more open to things um, naturally. I wasn't a try-hard look for like, oh, there's a little bird in the ceiling of this house. You know, it just happened more that I became, you know, more open-minded and my eyes were more open so it started probably then and i have this shitty burden i carry around you know all the stuff i really like is just too fucking expensive (laughs) (laughs) or even with all books i go to a bookstore i'm like oh they have that amazing open it 500 bucks shit nice chair of course it's the most expensive vintage chair uh, i can find or whatever it's a burden but i love aesthetics i love quality handcrafted stuff with a story i'm a hopeless romantic you know and i'm a sucker for all those things yeah so it started at an early age and it grew and grew more intense and it didn't yet stop that wheel it's like a tornado that just drags me around and spits me out in this whatever like furniture store and Look, wants me to look at the most beautiful things yeah it's great to have people like you in 2020 because it's an age where a lot of things are in the cloud even the mm-hmm. human oh, human yeah. relationship are in the cloud Absolutely. Uh, what, what do you think about social media well it's the same with the internet you know it, it's just a lot of knowledge it's a double-edged sword let's put it that way i profit from it And if I'm doing it right, it doesn't really hurt me that much. If I would be 16, probably, I wouldn't have all the experiences I have now. I would have probably a hard time. Who knows? Well, luckily, it's hypothetical. But I guess it can be very, very stressful on your mind and even body. So... You know, the first thing I wanted to say was like spitting out. It would be like, no, it's really bad. Like the bottom line. But it's not only bad, you know. It, uh, we can read about many things about psychology. We can track down records on Discogs. I can, you know, even look at 
Google like old school BMX. If I want to learn more about BMX, I can do that on YouTube or you can show me old BMX stuff with fixed gear stuff, just typing it in, in, in Google and we'll have it at our disposal. It's great. Everyone has the same who, who has, who owns a, a smartphone or a computer who has access to the internet has the same base who can create something. So there's a lot of music. There's a lot of video. There's a lot of good music, but there's much more shit in every sense. So people just throw their shit out there. And we are just here with open fucking arms, even if we don't want to, and we just get it. There's an oversaturation of things, too much shit, which is surrounding our brains and then um, maybe influences us in a bad way. If you can deal with it, that's great. I think I can, but I also had hard times, you know. I mean, if a thumb decides, if a thumb of someone you don't know values your product and you give that meaning to what the person values or the person, all the people value with their thumb on social media platforms, it can harm you. It can mentally put you down. You have to use it to your own interest, I feel like, because you do something so genuine and pure and it's the opposite of Instagram, what you do, you yeah. know, because, and then so, but you still need I'm a those platforms. Yeah. You still need those platforms to, um, to get the world out there so it's kind of like a game to play and I'm exactly doing the same thing it's kind of like you have to use social media on net on not let social media use, use you yes but we talked about it just briefly uh, at dinner and we agreed that things become much more disposable no matter what efforts behind the product or the project if it's a photograph let's say you you walked up the hill for 20 miles at three in the morning to finally reach a summit that's, you know, the golden light or in the sunrise and you had this vision and you had a large form of camera, a Linhof, you had to carry it up there and you plan it for so long and you have this shot and you put it in Instagram and people don't give a shit. <laughs> so that could be a harsh reality. But if you put weight on that outcome of people's thumbs, like meaning their emotions towards your whatever visual output or whatever output you have, And evaluate by that definition or like criticism or non-criticism, the reaction of the people. That's your problem in the end. But it's hard, right, to not deal with it, you know, or be affected by it. I mean, uh, when I put something, let's say we rent a helicopter, we're gonna go to the nicest location, riding uphill and then going down as smooth and fast as possible, having the greatest time. And we all had a great day. But then we put it online and we're so excited and no one gives a shit. <laughs> I mean, it's it hurts still, right? It does kind of hurt it's still, true. but you have to take a step back from yes. it and just use it as a game. And it used to hurt me too. And then, you know, even if you have like a 5,000 positive comments and one negative comment, you're going to focus on the negative comments. And that's so fucked up about the human brain, but that's the harsh reality. So at the end of the day, I think you just need to do your own thing, put the content Absolutely. you like online and then just let Absolutely. the people decide or whatever. But that's exactly that, that, that balance. Most of the stuff I really like, people don't seem to like. I don't know, but at some point you just do whatever because you have, we have to be true to ourselves. Cause right. to put on that topic, Pierre, the guy 
the homie who films and record this podcast was uh, had a, a great thought about it. He said that Instagram is the new uh, the Roman uh, circus, you know, with mm -hmm. Caesar or whatever, yeah. where thumb people used thumb to thumb. decide if you still live or you still don't a thumb up or it's thumb down. It's literally a thumb. It's literally a thumb. You yeah, know, it's honestly. like the big Roman Colosseum. <laughs> yeah, that is a great metaphor. Let's jump to a, a totally different subject, way more genuine. It's the preparation for all this crazy project you do. And I know you have a, a new project that mm -hmm. uh, you want to do in, uh, in Hawaii, mm -hmm. if I'm not wrong. All over the globe, yes. All over the globe. Yes. What's a typical day of preparation for you on the bike? Since I'm not racing, I'm not competing with other people. So I have my own preparation, which is amazing. I can just write the way I want to write, where I want to write, whenever I want to write. It depends on if I need to do a one climb from zero to four and a half thousand or even more, depending where. I need to make sure that I can ride five hours uphill without having a break and generating enough power with my body weight to get quicker uphill and lose, use less energy. So I train differently depending on the actual project. For now, uh, if, speaking of Hawaii, we already did a couple things in Hawaii. We're not yet finished. I need to go there again. And then, you know, like redo one. And that takes me probably four and a half hours to climb. If I go quick, like really quick. And, you know, the higher you go, the less oxygen is available at, is at your disposal. So that means I do alternate breathing, different breathing methodics on the bike, off the bike, in the bed. I have this technique where I can basically breathe or simulate an altitude of 4,000. What is it? I learned it from a book called The Oxygen Advantage. It's a guy called Patrick McEwen. It's an Irishman. Seems to be a very funny guy with a lot of knowledge about one of the big organs we have, the lung the two lungs, and he recommends nasal breathing. So three years ago, I started with that nasal breathing and I still struggle to maintain it all the way through my life, especially during sleep. So I'm doing those inhale through the nose and exhale through the nose breathing patterns. Depending how long the breath hold is and the exhalation in seconds, That makes basically the main difference of the altitude you are. And you can do it for 20 minutes, laying in bed. So that becomes your altitude chamber. And you can do it on the bike. You can basically do breath holds for like 10 seconds and go hard or just for one hour. What I do is I'll put water in my mouth and I ride for like 20 minutes uphill, which is bouche ferme, as you would say in France, you know, with the mouth closed. That's what I do. Wow, to simulate altitude. Exactly. And then off the bike, I saw that you posted something on your story today that you were doing some testing. I did a little. I just wanted to see. It. The last test I did was 2015. 2015? Yes. So yeah, five years ago. Yeah. Uh, I was in good shape and I want to see how I am now. Yeah. So I did a test just to see how much power I can generate within like 20 minutes and yeah. It's in watts, right? It's in watts, yes. Can you let us know what the test was like? They call it a functional threshold power. So basically what you can produce within 20 minutes and you take 10% off, you could produce for one hour. But my aim is to write for 
I always wanted to write 10 hours with like 280 watts. And at 1910, I had 268 for 12 hours and 54. Whoa. Yes. So, but I was like, you know, I should, if I want to probably maybe do this Zurich Zermatt, if I want to write this, do this right, which my friend organized, it's, I think, 300K. And if I want to be up there, I mean, it's not a real race, but, you know, I want to go quick there. And it probably takes me 10 hours and I need 280 watts to have a good time. And I was like, how much power do I need to produce in one hour? You know, they can somehow measure it. And if you can produce like 380, which is roughly my case, 370, I would have a good time there. And then I also need to ride like five hours, three times a week, back to back. So that makes 15 hour day, like in three days, 15 hours, rest day. And then another four, five, six hours, whatever. So that's a lot of hours in the bike if you want to do long distance. So it depends always on the project, what I do. But I spend roughly between 15 and 25 hours on the bike and maybe six to 10 hours in the gym. I prefer the a gym. Week. Yes. Let's say average training is probably 23 hours. A week of yes. training? Yes. Wow. Because then there is the recovery process. I saw yes. you, we were right before we started this podcast. We had a foam roller in the room, yes. and then I have a, a massage gun. Mm -hmm. And you were. It seems like you are pretty uh, accurate with that. Mm -hmm. You use it a lot, the foam roller. On the I use it at least thirty minutes in the morning and thirty minutes in the evening, every day. It's more like something in your mind now that yeah, uh, it's a pattern, a daily routine. Whether I'm training or not, I just it makes me feel more like the blood flow. It's better and it affects my mental health. It has a meditative aspect and I like that. But the funny thing is I used to train always a lot, but I never took really care of the recovery. I just started doing that probably two and a half years or three years max. And it got way better and better because I learned more and more. There was a guy telling me, oh, you should never stretch immediately after you work out. I was like, oh, how's that? That's interesting. He said at least one and a half hours later. He explained it to me because of the fascias, etc., how they recover or how their state after the workout is, and they shouldn't be touched afterwards. So that was his theory, and he was very confident. And I don't know if it's true. So sometimes I wait now. <laughs> one and a half hours, sometimes not. So there's always people giving you new advices, and I... By now, I know what works for me. But I still, if something sounds good, I'll apply it. But the rolling for 30 minutes in the morning and in the evening is is a good thing for me. It's a must. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Yes, also a bit of must for me. Yeah. You do it too, right? I do like stretching in the morning, stretching at night. Okay. And then a lot do, of, uh, do you vegan. roll before stretching or stretch first and roll after? I stretch first and then I roll after. Okay. And uh, I try to do it before I eat food too so like yeah. it's not too hard stomach, on the stomach yeah. and everything but when you go ride you you do that before the ride obviously before the ride yeah but yeah. not where you're when you're at the spot you're just gonna ride you're not gonna stretch there you do it at home yeah the only time i do it at the spot is when we film street and mm -hmm. uh, i'm out in the street for 10 days when we film for a project and oh, then okay. when you are really really sore Yeah, and then yeah. the only time available is like when you are out in the street mm -hmm. or right before you do a trick, you want to get yeah, because that's the only time. 
what's crazy what you're doing is you twist a lot so your upper body sometimes you know it doesn't move in the same probably speed as the legs is it so there might be some stuff going on with this alignment you know like with your hips or oh yeah there's a bunch i'm sure of, you experience that kind of stuff bunch of back problems but or, I, yeah. i've been really on the program and i've been really trying to uh, get on the no uh, animal program which i know you've been a, a big fan of for a long yes. time can you uh, drive us a little bit through your uh, daily uh, food routine mm -hmm. so yes i'm plant-based i don't eat anything that comes from an animal so no eggs no nothing. cheese nothing. nothing if it's from an animal that's 100 plant-based and gluten-free as well which makes me sleep better, causes less inflammation. So that helps with my recovery and everything, which is very important. Uh, I always strive for the most minimal way to get better, you know. And if I need to train less and maintain a great performance, why not? So what I do is I, do, I have this juicer. Yeah, it's called Omega Juicer. I love this thing. It's one of the best investments I've ever made. And I, I call it deliberately an investment because it's not that cheap, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's amazing. So I'll do those special juices. My girlfriend has this uh, nutrition specialist. She kindly put me in touch with, and she gave me some recipes, which are perfectly custom made for me and my body. And I'll do like one of those in the morning. And I eat three times a day, plant-based meal, learned that I need to combine it in an exact way, like seeds with nuts and legumes all together to have the most efficient protein. As a vegan, it's, you know, those protein questions, they come all the time. From. Yeah, of course. So yes, we get a lot of protein, don't you worry. No Sometimes you can smell the protein in the air, trust me. It's <laughs> no food so much. I do take because I take maca, MCT oil, pomegranate powder, pea protein, hemp, milk, almond milk sometimes, mostly unsweetened. And I try to uh, not consume processed sugar at all, which is hard sometimes, especially uh, when they open a vegan bakery next to you it's really hard i can show you tomorrow if you want to i would love it's, that you will like it i will just you know it's hard for me you know to go there and not eat something but i will do it for you you know i will resist we'll see but you have to check it out it's amazing it's amazing what they do and they're actually opening just right, right around the corner gluten-free vegan bakery i don't remember the date when but soon in one month or something and that's going to be interesting So normally I will cut away from sugar, let's say 80-20, that's what I believe in. Do 80% in your life right and 20%, you know. Freestyle. <laughs> yeah, you know. But with the plant-based food, I'm, I'm super strict. Super, super Yes, strict. because I think for me it's the best thing. I love it and it seems very pure and it doesn't harm me at all. I feel better. And I understand that people are suspicious and they don't really jump on the bandwagon and especially the medical people or even the state. There's more interesting stories about that. <laughs> When the state is not happy how you, because of the nutrition you give to your child. So they even interfere if you, if you raise a child that's vegan or whatever. Some, they have a child police here. And, um, that's very interesting and very bad. 
I think plant-based nutrition is very healthy, but it needs to be supervised, especially if you're an athlete. So I get my block controlled. I get B12 shots to my deltoid, my shoulder, every month at least. So you get B12 shots in yes, your shoulders yes. once a month? Yes, because especially, like I said, as an athlete, I think it makes sense to have your doctor or your medical people checking your blood, making sure that you're healthy. Mm -hmm. Because the transition from being a non-vegan eating dairy or even meat, even being a vegetarian is a big transition that may affect you. And you maybe want to have a look. You're going through that program now. For how long now? Uh, it's been six months. It's really, really new. Six months already. Yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. I felt the big changes coming after like at least, yeah, six months. Yeah. Like the detoxification. Have you ever had like pimples on your back or something? Yeah. Did you I, notice that? I don't have pimples anymore. But did you, did you have? I did. Yes. Yeah. yeah. A lot. And dude, it's funny you said In that. In the face or on the back? On the back. Ah. And it's great. At I, the beginning you had it? No, no, like... When you ate meat and all that stuff, I, and yeah, milk when, and all that yeah. pus that came... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pus, basically, the milk. You saw it in the cows, like, when they... Yeah, <sighs> but not anymore. It's crazy. I didn't notice until you said it, but yeah, I did have a lot of pimples and now in the back, and now I don't. I really do feel better. Mm -hmm. I'm not vegan or vegetarian. I don't consider myself that mm -hmm. because I still eat chicken or fish from mm -hmm. time to time. Mm -hmm. But I'm but really not trying... as to much as you used to. No, not at all. I think that's great because I'm not a missionary. I don't promote it. There's other people who do it for me. <laughs> I just appreciate when someone tells me that story, like you, that they consider what they eat as uh, beneficial for their own, for, for themselves, and it even impacts, you know, the nature. And of course, in. for me, it was not at first something only for animals or only for the mm -hmm. planet it was something more uh, egoist yeah, yeah. it was more like for for me but Which now i see that the impact i have on animals absolutely. and on the planet and it's it's yes. as you said it's it's harmless so you do good and yeah. but know. it's like i remember the the big boss that was created because beyonce and chase went vegan like everyone all the vegans started hating oh now they become vegan <laughs> get the fuck out of here it's like it's it's what you want you know that those vegans they're sects they seem like oh sect. they're like uh, with their crosses you know doing their crusades and you know hating on other people who aren't vegans or just became vegans because they're celebrities just get on with it give everyone the chance don't point with the finger on others you know as you said earlier, like people have too much judgment yes. these days. And I don't know why. I don't understand. Why do we need to talk about others all the time? It's know? crazy. I mean, do cool stuff. Get inspired and be inspired and not talk shit. It's just yeah. I feel like people are scared of what they don't know. And when you mm. were using this word like hemp or seeds or B12 shots, for people Maybe. who don't know, it can be like, it can be scary and be like a lot. But when you actually do it, it's not. It's just something yeah. that becomes as natural as cooking a, a steak or whatever. Like. But the interesting thing, I'll tell you a story. My, my landlord, he's a farmer. He's probably 45, but he looks like fucking 55. He looks at least 10 years older and... <laughs> And he comes in and he shakes, <laughs> like, uh, he looks like fucking, he's about to die. And 
he still tries to be like the hard guy. Yeah, 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 I got up at five and I this and that the whole day. I do that all my life, you know, this hard guy. And you can see he's so uncomfortable with his whole life. He's so uncomfortable. And his dad probably taught him to just stick to it, you know, eat it up, just and get on with it, you know. No pain, no gain, you know. <laughs> And the healthier I get and the more I focus on the good sides of nutrition and lifestyle, just enough sleep and and all the things you need to be an actual active and functioning human, being able to absorb stress and deal with life in a proper way, you need to focus on that. And you see other people who actually just, they lose their hair with at an early age, they walk like a Quasimodo, you know, the hatchback of... Notre Dame at an early age, not because I'm, I don't judge them. Don't get me wrong. It's just we got taught the wrong information at an early stage and our genetics got fucked because of all, all the generations that were taught the wrong things. And I'm not judging anyone here. It's just a fact. I did so many wrong things and I still do. But at least, and that's a good thing about the internet, maybe, that I can do research and trust my intuition and read about things and try out things. And then I can also see or inspire other people to do it, you know, especially friends. You know, I mean, I taught this landlord, hey, maybe you should stop having those cortisone shots all the time and work from 6 in the morning till 10 in the evening in your stable because your your hernia is killing you and you shouldn't work and lift heavy things. And no, no, it's no problem. You know, I can renovate the flat upstairs by myself with my father who's basically dying. You know, just start eating differently and maybe go to a physio and, you know, but he, they put inject cortisone so he can function. The bottom line of this is nutrition can heal or fuck you up. That's it. Boom. That's a good bottom line. And uh, you've been learning a lot of these things in books. And that's one of the reasons we are in a, <laughs> in a book uh, library today. Tell me a little bit, when did you get into reading and when you get deep into like books? That's a hard question because I don't really remember it. I was more of a, a music fan, but I read the lyrics. So I would always read lyrics of, I remember the Nirvana records asking my dad what it means and he would translate. I started reading lyrics and also learning another language, which was English and French also, because my dad liked Noir Désir as well. So some familiar terrain here from the different France too. And yeah, so the reading started when deliberately through uh, lyrics. Of course, at school we were reading too, but the stuff I liked was lyrics and then it's, you know, evolved. I loved poems. Yes, yes. I was always a hopeless romantic, you know. And I loved, like, meeting a princess once, you know, and being with her all my life and all that shit. Um, I met a couple of princesses. They were exchanged for another princess. <laughs> now I have a great princess, and I'm so happy with this princess, and I hope it's not going to change. So Happily yeah. ever after. Yes, exactly. And I still read a lot of poems especially from William Blake I think everything started with lyrics I still read lyrics probably every day song, song lyrics yes wow yeah yeah 
Do you I love lyrics. Do you think it helps you with your bike? There's a good line out of a poem from William Blake. He, he was stating, great things happen when men and mountain meet. That's a good one. You've been on a mountain recently with Mike Horn, right? Yep. I, I was great things happen. Great things happen. Did you struggle? Did you struggle? I did struggle. Yeah. Mike Horn is a gnarly human. He's I heard amazing. so. I heard so. I heard so. He, he did some great expeditions. That poem inspired me because it's somehow, if that guy at, at that stage said that, you know, and he was different back then, probably, you know, he loved to hike as well. So did Alistair Crowley and some others that spoke to me you know it was an essential line of words you know sometimes other people say things we know but they put it on the plate the way we would be like oh yes exactly that speaks exactly you know like how i see it how i feel and there's poems who totally reflect it and that motivates you to do to go on you know or inspires you to do another You know, it could be a song you use for an upcoming edit or whatever. It just, I love being inspired and not looking desperately for something. I love organic things that just happen. Like we, we meet, you remember how we met? In New York. So Hudson, yeah, Hudson River. Out there riding around with my friend Phil Gale. And I saw your cap. You were wearing a Ripple cap. And that's a great thing about Ripple athletes, you know, most of them are true followers of head branding and you'll <laughs> recognize them and you certainly are one of them and you're i was happy to meet you oh, otherwise yeah. we might wouldn't be here talking to each other and sharing thoughts so you see that happened organically that happens organically and it will lead to other things and that's that's a great thing that's what i like about it organic process yeah very nice what's if there is a i know that's a really hard question and you're gonna hate me for that If all the books had to disappear and there was only one left on planet Earth for you, what would it be? My own photo book, I would do. Because then <laughs> I would not forget the great memories and I would choose all my favorite photographs I took. Yeah. That's a really good fucking answer, Patrick Seabase. One more question that like, uh, like all uh, the guys I've been interviewing is like, what would you say to uh, Patrick Seabase when he was 10 years old? <laughs> stop stealing your mother's cash for records <laughs> <laughs> that's really good too that's really good I've noticing a lot of uh, things on your mm -hmm. body so our mind so I'm gonna cut the crap and say don't Same. ask you how many tattoos you get because I hate answering yeah. that question it's Do you a know useless it? question no I don't me neither all the journalists are like how many tattoos you yes. get I don't know yeah. I don't care it's like the vegan protein yeah, exactly. question yes <laughs> but um What is the reason? Because I know I have a reason. What is your reason for getting uh, tattoos? Oof. But it started very early when I was 16. Um, I was into hardcore and metal. I still am not into hardcore that much anymore. But there was this band called H2O and they released uh, their album. I think it was called Thicker Than Water. And they had a Sacred Heart cover. It was a heart with thorns around. It had a little cut and there was, you know, blood coming out. And two swallows, they were flying above the heart. And so my right calf, and that was my first tattoo. How old were you? It was two weeks before. It was in December, probably first, December 1st. And I was about to turn 16 on December the 11th, 10 days before actually um, being legally <laughs> able to get a tattoo. So I did it anyway. 
I got more and more and more and more and more and more and more. Yeah, and uh, I still get more, probably, you know. Just for souvenirs or? It's a hard thing. I'm trying to explain it to you, even though you probably have to say you're in the same situation. It's, I mean, the older you get, the more uh, selective you are and the less, you know, tattoos you get. Because between 16 and 25, I got the most, obviously. And then it decreased. And now I'm more, it has to be something very cool. It's very meaningful and because I have tons of shit, tons of shit. I mean, oh my God, <laughs> really bad shit. Like, but I'm not going to cover all of them and they're just there, you know? Yeah. And I even forget that I have tattoos sometimes. I don't think about it. I know. Well, do you think about it all I the time? Totally forget and you that have, I have even your hands, you know? Yeah. You got the knuckles, the, The palm? Do you have the palm? No, I don't. Okay. But I have like the ribs, yeah. everything. And for me, at first, honestly, the first five years was just to. I just really wanted to get a sleeve because I thought it was really cool, you know. From yeah. 17 to like 23, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I just want to get that. When did you get your first one? I think I was 17. Oh, so around the same I age. Wrote, What was it? I wrote rock and roll on my arm. But rock I, and roll. Yeah, that's that's I, like my lift to skate. It's like a <laughs> guilty, guilty forever. <laughs> but uh, I fell on the air. Uh, oh no! It says cock and roll, and it's not the same. <laughs> cock and roll. It's not the same meaning. Yeah. But no, so and like the Bruce Lee. Yeah. Amazing. He's just reading a book because Bruce Lee. Yeah, of you? course. He's always busy reading or fighting. <laughs> so it's for me now. It's just yeah, more souvenirs. But it used to be just because I wanted to get tattoos. I thought they looked good. Now I don't think it looked that good. If you have the mind you have now, would you approach tattooing the same way now? If you wouldn't have any tattoos, let's say. Would you go all in or would you be more selective? Would you even get a tattoo? I don't think so I would get a tattoo. Yeah, yeah, me neither. Uh. I just told my girlfriend, I was like, I don't know if I would get a tattoo because there's, they're every fucking where. Yeah. And not that I want to be the most special person on the planet, but it's just more like. Yeah, exactly. One thing we can't is like properly get rid of them. <laughs> That's. We're not going to laser those. No, right? I'm, it's going to stay there forever. Yes, so. Tattoos forever. No yes. regrets. No regrets. No regrets, bro. That's it. No <laughs> regrets. What is your uh, most straightforward answer when people uh, ask you, uh, how do you make a living from fixed gear? Because that's a question we get all the yes. time. Like when we say, like, yeah, we ride bike for a living, people are like, but what's your actual job? So what do you answer to that well, question? Well, I still don't have the short answer. It's more of a, I would just tell them, yeah, I, I ride bikes and I have sponsors. They really like what I do, or at least they seem to like it i go somewhere ride my bike there capture it on film and photography and release it and that's it it's very egotistical to a certain extent but it's very inspiring to some because every day so i can say i just inspire people riding bikes they would say or ask are you a courier do you deliver food on your bike no no like i said i just <laughs> Happened to ride a bike and uh, capture it and release it on social media, on Vimeo or wherever. And, and people like people. it. Yes. Some hate it. Some love it. That's it. And I I love it. That's the most important thing. Yes. All right. We can check all of uh, our adventures in a vlog that just uh, came out with that podcast. Bern is certainly an amazing city. So uh, does Patrick Seabase. Thank you so much for Thank being you. Uh, a part of it today. Thank you. You are the man. Next to me. You're the man too. So great mind. Great to see you. 
Love you boys. Thanks for listening. Bye. Have a nice one. <laughs> Thank you so much for your attention and listening to my podcast, Deconing Athletes with Red Bull. Some of my personal takeaway from the conversation with Patrick are definitely the food conversation we had. I think having a really healthy diet can drastically improve your performances. And I think having a plant-based diet is even more efficient. I also really love the fact that Patrick is training constantly on and off the bike, doing a lot of breathing exercises, yoga, and really take time for recuperation. This is very important. Let me know what your personal takeaway from the interview. You can share it with the hashtag DecodingAthletes on Instagram. And don't forget to tag me so I can see it. We filmed a vlog while we were in Bern with Patrick, and you can now watch it. It's on my YouTube channel and there is a video version of the podcast that's available on my YouTube channel as well. You can find the link down below in the show notes. Tune in next time when I meet with Mike Horn and Cyril Desprez, the South African French duo we teamed up for the Dakar Rally. Cyril Desprez has taken part 20 times at the World Toughest Rally. Mike Horn is a legendary aventurer who has completed a solo journey around the Equator and became the first person to travel to the North Pole without a dog or motorized support during winter in permanent darkness. Absolute craziness. Let's hear what they have to tell you for a moment. And I decided to keep going because I said, I can't miss my promise. I was sad. I was crying every morning on my, my glasses, but I said, I have to push myself and I need this victory. I'm not motivated at minus 40 to get out of the tent and freeze my fingers and my toes. And I'm not motivated to do that, but I'm disciplined. If I give up, I die. The next episode with Cyril and Mike will drop next week, Wednesday at 6 p.m. CET. Don't miss that out and subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you guys so much for listening to my podcast. Have a great day and see you next week. Decoding Athletes with Matthias Dondois is a production of Maniac Studios for Red Bull Media House.